Bangor Worldwide has been promoting and supporting World Mission for over 85 years. Our podcasts are free of charge. You can find out more about us at www.worldwidemission.org. We hope you enjoy this talk. Well, first you'll notice we read from the book of Luke rather than the book of John, and that's my fault. Uh, Some months ago when I sent in what uh, we'd be speaking of, uh, I looked at what I'd written, John chapter 15, John chapter John, and I thought, oh, it's themes in John, so I sent it in. And then realized uh, about a week ago as I was uh, preparing that, oh, that was Luke 15, not John 15. And so I trust uh, this, the, it's the same Jesus in the Gospel of Luke that, uh, that we have in the Gospel of John. We'll orient ourselves uh, this morning from Luke, and then the rest of the week we'll be walking through the book of John together. Uh, I'm thinking about a young woman. Uh, she, was, uh, she was, at the time, about 11 years old, and uh, she went away to summer church camp from our church, and she came home an atheist. That's not exactly what you hope for uh, with your youth ministry, that you provide a camp and a child comes home and says, I'm an atheist, but that is what happened. And uh, as uh, uh, her mom called me and my wife, Jessica, and uh, asked if we would talk with her and Uh, We invited her over, and we sat on the floor, and we ate cookies that Jessica had wonderfully made, and and, uh, we began to talk to this 11-year-old who let us know that God is irrelevant to real life and that science has disproved Him. And uh, we can't really know anything other than what science has proven. And so I did ask her, of course, an epistemological question. I did ask, as I noticed she enjoyed the chocolate chip cookies, I did ask So, do you like chocolate? Yes, yes I do. How do you know you like chocolate? Duh, she said, everybody likes chocolate. And of course we talked about how she just demonstrated knowledge that wasn't scientifically proven. Without minimizing scientifically proven knowledge. But of course that's not really the issue for an 11 year old. She was wearing J fashion. We didn't know what that was. J fashion was Japanese fashion. And uh, she was decked out with Japanese fashion, talking about her birthday and her friends that were coming over. In all her denial of God, she was 11. And so we began to ask her a couple of questions. I just asked, you know, uh, she had said God is irrelevant. I just said, what if God is a baker of chocolate? What if God originated chocolate? What if God mm, loves chocolate? She looked at me funny. What if God is a scientist, I said, who loves birds and reptiles and trees and the ground and the soil and the fish in the sea? What if God loves to observe all the natural world and he delights in it? She still looked at me funny. I tried again. What if God is a fashion designer? What if God loves colors and patterns and textures? And what if God loves to bring pattern and texture together and to create? I never thought about that, she said. And now we were getting somewhere. 
You see, the, the issue for her, as with so many of us, uh, is that behind her ideas was a picture. Beneath her ideas was a, a picture. The picture she had of God was as irrelevant. Perhaps in her mind, forgive her offense, she viewed God as an elderly man or woman who doesn't know how to use a computer and ask their grandkids for help. And she imagined as beautiful as such a person is, if the whole weight of the world rests upon such a person, how could she trust such a person? And she had a picture of God as uh, uh, scientifically unverifiable. But what she loved was chocolate and fashion and the natural world. And of course we know, so does God. And so we invited her to consider different pictures of God so that we could then over time reason with her. Now why would we do that? It's so something like this. Uh, if, if I were to ask you, who is God? If you come from a Bible-believing point of view, you might, without realizing it, begin to offer genus and species, categories and classifications. You might say, well, God, and then you would talk about his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. And then you might say, God is omniscient. God is omnipotent. God is omnipresent. And how wonderfully helpful that would be. But if you were to ask the Bible, who is God? Well, the pages of the Bible will tell you God is like an eagle underneath whose wings you are held. God is like a strong tower. God is like light. God is a rock, a high mountain. If you were to ask Jesus, who is God? He would say God and his kingdom are like a woman baking bread. God and his kingdom are like fishermen with a boat and a net. God and his kingdom are like a bridegroom inviting you to a wedding feast. God is like a shepherd. God is like a woman who has lost her coin. God is like a betrayed father who waits with longing to forgive and celebrate. My aim this morning is to orient ourselves to Jesus' way. And if by God's grace we do feel compelled by his love to go into our neighborhoods and into the nations, then we want to learn from him. Because my question for you would be this. What picture of God are you bringing with you? And what disposition of that God are you embodying? So that when people hear your ideas, you recognize they also see a picture. And oftentimes the picture beneath the idea is the real trouble. Let's pray together and let's look at how Jesus walked with four, he named four different reasons that people have barriers to their faith. 
And then in response, he pictured God and offered a disposition. And from that, we can learn from his love. So let's pray, and then we'll look. Lord, here we are. We ask you would open our heart to you, that we might behold you, and that you would recover us, reorient us, even us who love you, that you would recover our picture of you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Notice the problem. It's, verse, it's chapter 15, verse 2. Pharisees and scribes are grumbling about Jesus, right? They're complaining about him. So what this means is they believe they are more moral than Jesus. They have a complaint. Perhaps you've had a complaint in church. Perhaps you've had a complaint in life. You've grumbled about something. And when you grumble about it, what you mean is if they would only do it the way I think, if they would only see my point of view, if they would only adjust in the way I think they should adjust, then all would be well. And sometimes that's from a place of wisdom and knowledge. But sometimes that's from a place of self-righteousness. And Jesus perceived in these folks self-righteousness. They thought if Jesus would just adjust this or that about what he was doing, then he might get along better. He would be more effective, more relevant, more up-to-date, more preferable. And of course, here, it's a, a theologically conservative Bible talkers, like me, perhaps like some of you, that Jesus is dealing with, who are grumbling about him. Isn't that amazing? Bible-believing people grumbling about Jesus. Can you imagine? But it's not only such people that grumble about Jesus. Progressive people complain about Jesus too. They seek to edit him. If he would just change this or that, this or that, then I could follow him. Spiritual but not religious people edit Jesus too. That's why they're spiritual but not religious. Taking a little bit here and a little bit there and creating their own personal buffet of a spiritual lifestyle that they prefer. That's why a secular materialist complains about Jesus. Ah, if Jesus would just say this or that or do away with that kind of rubbish, then sure. And as we are compelled to go into the world, when we move towards someone who is not a follower of Jesus, we're moving towards someone who has a complaint, a grumble with him. Jesus names four, the person who wanders, the person who's misplaced, the runaway rebel and the stay-at-home rebel. And as he names those four dispositions of complaint, he then pictures God. So let's begin there. People who wander. Excuse my Midwestern Indiana accent. I might sound like I said wonder, but it's wander. People who wander. Sheep don't intentionally leave a flock. They're not that smart, nor that angry or malicious. They're harmless. They pose no threat. They're not intimidating. Sheep just get lost. They, they make a choice a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, a little bit there. They see something interesting. They go there. And before you know it, 
The sheep has lost its connection to the flock and to the shepherd. A sheep wanders off. Unlike the runaway rebel who stands and defiantly leaves. A sheep is not the same posture of heart. A sheep doesn't know how it got there. Jesus reminds us of how we get there in his parable of the soil and the seeds. Do you remember the soil? Money and the cares of this life that choke us. Or perhaps you remember in the Old Testament how God said this? Remember, lest when you have eaten and are full, when you have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So provided for that gradually you forget. You just, you might still have a tear when you hear an old hymn from your childhood. You, you might have a fondness for God. You might say to yourself, well, I, I certainly believe in God. I just, and this person once was in the flock, once was a churchgoer, once was around the words and teachings of the shepherd, but somewhere through their teen years and their 20s and maybe their 30s, they just wandered. They just never came back. And they got lost. Jesus draws upon Old Testament imagery here to talk about a sheep that's lost. Uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia with C.S. Lewis, if, if you've not read to the end of those stories or seen the end of those stories on a movie, spoiler alert, I'm about to give away how it ends, but I, I feel like the story is old enough that perhaps it's okay. But you know perhaps that there are four children, Peter, Lucy, Edmund, and Susan. And in the line in the Witch of the Wardrobe, you remember Edmund betrays Aslan, but then is recovered and forgiven and restored. And then you remember the great battle and all four children as kings and queens of Narnia fight alongside Aslan and by his strength they overcome the White Witch. Remarkable. But interestingly, by the last story, the last battle, only three children are there. Susan's nowhere to be found. And when they ask Aslan the lion about Susan, Aslan says with sadness, Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. And then, using the language of the time, Lewis has Aslan say, she has turned her back on Narnia in favor of nylons, lipstick, and party invitations. Susan looks at her 15-odd years as a queen of Narnia and begins to just wander. Zacchaeus. Jesus identifies as a lost sheep of Israel. He uses this language of lost sheep as he teaches and as he sends out the 72, as he talks about his mission to go and find the wanderers of Israel. Notice then Jesus' disposition toward a tax collector like Zacchaeus. He will come 
and eat with him. But Zacchaeus is a sinner. He has a complaint against God. He has wandered away. Yes. And so Jesus pursues him and eats with him. And that's what caused the grumbling. Remember in verse 1? Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees grumbled. They said, this man receives sinners, and he eats with them. What is the picture of God that Jesus desires a wandering sheep to see? That that God is like a shepherd. A shepherd stinks with weather. A shepherd stinks with sheep. A shepherd who pursues a lost sheep will brave any kind of weather, any kind of wild animal, through rock, crevice, bush, to find the one that was lost. The shepherd is not a frowning separator. The shepherd is a sacrificial pursuer. Is there someone you love who's wandered? What disposition does Jesus want them to experience from you? What picture of God does Jesus desire them to imagine? Isn't it this? That God is like a shepherd, dear one. And I know you don't know how God, you got to where you're going. I know you've sort of woken up in your life and thought, how did I get here? I know you have some fond memory, but that seems too far away. Still he comes to eat with you, to sit in the midst of your life and to call you to himself. Isn't that something? Sometimes people wander. Sometimes people get misplaced. Now, this is a startling picture that Jesus gives us. It's troubling. If we had the opportunity to study the parables, you would actually see that Jesus often concedes his critics' points in his parables. Jesus often gives voice to a character or dialogue that concedes the the experience and complaint that people have. And in this case, Jesus says that we are like coins and that God is like a woman, financially savvy, who knows that in her house a coin has been misplaced and she will do anything to find it. Her disposition, sweeping the floor, lighting the lamp, diligently looking, and will not quit until she finds it. Perhaps Jesus is thinking about the women that Luke later, that Luke has already told us about in chapter 8. The women, the disciples who followed him, the women who financially supported his ministry. But think about this a coin has no will. 
A sheep has a will. The two sons have will. A coin doesn't. And a coin, it's the only bit of the story that doesn't begin in intimate relationship. The shepherd was with the, was with the sheep and the flock, and the sheep wandered off from the flock and the shepherd. The two sons were with the father, in the father's house, access to all the father's life and family life, and then one of them ran away. But here, a coin has no will. A coin doesn't begin in relationship of intimacy. A, a coin has to do with purpose and value. You use a coin at its best to enable good. To live and make a living. Is Jesus saying that is he picturing God as one who seems to have lost you? The fault in this story is not with the coin. The Lego, the little Lego piece from your grandchild or your child or your niece or nephew that sits underneath the chair that no one can find wasn't the Lego piece's fault. And doesn't it seem like that in life? That sometimes someone you love or know or someone in the world, it seems like for all of their earnest effort, it seems like for all of their attempts, God has forgotten them. They're like misplaced coins with no relationship in a house. I was in a panel discussion of Christians in St. Louis, Missouri, and each of us were asked how it was we came to believe and follow Jesus. And the person next to me uh, was from the Middle East, and that person told of a vision. Jesus appeared to him, he said, without flinching. He knew nothing of Jesus. He grew up uh, Muslim. And that someone appeared to him, and he didn't know who it was. But that someone told him to go talk to so-and-so. And he went and he found so-and-so. And that person had a scrap, didn't have the Bible, had pages of it, and read from the bits of the Bible to this person. And that's when this person learned about Jesus and thought, that's the one who appeared to me. And that person gave their life to following Jesus on pain of harm with their family, who has now disenfranchised that person and threatened that person should they ever come home. Now, someone here might be saying, as our young 11-year-old might have, ah, visions, science has disproved such things. But it is intriguing, isn't it, that whatever this vision was, this person risked everything in their life. What incentive would they have to do that? At minimum, this person really believed. He saw Jesus alive right here in the 21st century. So much so 
that he has been found, and now he follows. I think of the woman at the well. She, it's no fault of hers where she grew up, where she was born. And what does Jesus do? He pursues her. It's her he's pursuing. In particular, the text makes it clear. He's not just going to any old well because he's thirsty, wondering who might come. Just like with Zacchaeus, he is purposed, and it's her. And how does he picture God for her? I know about water that's alive. (laughs) Is that the way you would start? (laughs) I wouldn't. I know about water that's alive. And then you know the rest. Maybe this is the first soil of Jesus' parable. The one where the, the, the birds come and rip out of the heart the seed that was sown and the person just doesn't understand. They've experienced evil in some way and they just, they just don't get it. Everything in their life feels like they've just been forgotten by God and misplaced by God. And if you know such a person, what picture are you meant to offer them? I know you're lost. I know it feels like you're misplaced. It's true. It sure looks like that. It looks like God misplaced you and lost you. It's true. But whatever it looks like and whatever it feels like, I know this. God is like a financially savvy woman who knows the value of who you are. And that God is moving everything around in the house to find you. Those who grumbled were troubled by such pictures. Troubled by such compassion, such kindness, such pursuit. Third, the wanderer, the misplaced, the runaway rebel. You know this, the son who ran away. Jesus is drawing upon Zechariah chapter 3 for this story. Joshua, the great high priest, was standing before the throne with the devil to accuse him. The high priest was in filthy rags. The devil was right in his accusation. But God the judge stood in that courtroom. And even though Satan was right in his accusation, Joshua was wearing filthy rags. It was true. Even though he was right, he did not have the right to accuse. Isn't this one I've plucked from the fire? Silence, says God to the accuser. Maybe someone you know knows that they are worthy of being accused. But they don't yet know that in Christ Jesus, though the accusation is right, it no longer has the right. Because God will silence the accuser. And then reframe your identity. Aren't you one that I've plucked from the fire? 
And then, what does he do in Zechariah 3? He calls for his servants. New clothes. A new ring. Affection and welcome. Surely Jesus is drawing upon this imagery as he pictures God for the runaway rebel. Notice this. With the wanderer, the shepherd pursues. With the misplaced coin, the woman pursues. With the stay-at-home rebel, who we'll see in a moment, the father pursues. With the runaway rebel, the father does not pursue. But achingly, longingly, lets them go and waits. No shunning. It isn't the father who said, you must leave my house. No. No. It was the son who said, I will leave your house. And the father said, Okay. A rich young ruler came to Jesus. He asked about eternal life. He had the right question. But the way he imagined God was that in some way he would have to separate from his money. And that was true. That's what Jesus said. And he just couldn't imagine having a good life without all that money. He, he, he couldn't imagine that that money could be useful for others in Jesus' hands. He, he couldn't imagine. And so he walked away. And Jesus said, no, please don't. Stay. No. No. Jesus, who loved him, let him go. Do you know that the Lord will let the one you love go if they want to go. Within the mystery of his sovereignty, I'm speaking like a child with a story that Jesus told. If you want all of his inheritance, if you want to leverage the resources of God for your own personal gain, he will let you it brings wreckage to the family. Why does he let it happen? Why doesn't he stop it? The story must play out. Sometimes apologetics isn't our need. Sometimes the long love of the father in the memory of the son who runs away is the thing that will win the day but it will take time. Why? Because the son has to live out the full consequences of his happy choice and to discover for himself that what he thought would satisfy his heart in the end crushes it. And it isn't until he's crushed by his own choices that he remembers. Now at that point, you see, what is the picture the runaway son has 
of God there in the pig slop. This matters a great deal for those who are listening to Jesus' story. Because what he's just done is conceded their point. Their point is that these people are sinners. And Jesus in his story has said, yes, they are. Where does he have, as the artist of the story, the writer, where does he have the young man who ran away end up? Among pigs. What would that have communicated to a Jewish listener? Unclean. Jesus concedes the point. You are right. But that's not the end of the story, and that's the problem. And so the grumblers would picture God as a frowning, shunning father who kicked out his son and said, good riddance until that son gets his life straight and becomes holy, and then maybe the father will welcome them back. That's the picture of those who are grumbling. But Jesus goes right to the pig slot, right to the place of uncleanness. And what does the son remember? The picture of God is of a good father who had always been good to him, always been fair to him, even when he had run from that God, even when he had rejected that God, that God had still been kind to him. You want my inheritance? Here. Here. Take it. It's yours. There was nothing in the memory of the son, of a father who kicked him out, shunned him. It was only the kindness of God. And isn't this what Paul the apostle tells us? It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And as he pictures that kindness, he pictures his own unworthiness. I'm no longer fit to be a son. But the God, my Father, he even treats the servants with dignity. He even treats the servants with equity. So I will go and ask if I could be a servant. Because even a servant in my Father's house has dignity, provision, love. When my own uh, children, I have four, and my two oldest uh, had walked away from God in painful, painful ways. This is where I've come. What do I do? How do I respond? What disposition am I to offer? What is the picture of God they need in their memory when the time comes? And here's where I would meditate. And for the one who, if there, if there had been one who wandered off, if there had been one who felt misplaced, 
But in both cases, it was, I don't want. You know, in the bathroom of the house, on the floor, I wept and wept. And I thought of my papa, my grandfather, who didn't come to saving faith in Christ until his 70s. Just a couple of years before his death. And I thought about his mom, my great-grandmother, who prayed for him. And I thought about his wife, my grandmother, who prayed for him for decades. And then I thought to myself, oh God, I long to see my children come home to you. But even if I can't, please make it so. Because my papa's wife had died by then. And he was a widower when he came to know him. And his mom surely had died long before him. Maybe they didn't get the opportunity then to see the fruit of their prayers. But their grandson did. And what a story we'll all have to tell in days to come. Finally, the stay-at-home rebel. And now you know that Jesus is a wise rhetorician, a wise storyteller, a wise preacher, because the, the audience he's aiming for is in his last point, his final point. He starts here with sheep, here with the coin, here with the unclean runaway rebel, and now who is he aiming for? the very ones who were grumbling, the Pharisees and the, about the tax collectors he's eating with. And you know it. It's the son who won't go to the party. What does the son who won't go to the party desire his younger brother to picture and experience? Have you ever felt that? Someone you love has walked away willingly and what you want them to feel is pain. And what you want them to feel is the shunning holiness of God. And what you want them to feel is joyless inferiority. I get it. I have that junk in my heart too. But it's not the stuff of Jesus or the stuff of the Bible. Jesus pictures the Father even pursuing the stay-at-home rebel. And notice, he gives him invitation. Even you who've grumbled, he's saying, Come. Even you who want a joyless inferiority for others and a joyless superiority for yourselves in church, come. Come dance. Come sing. Come into fellowship and friendship. Come into food. Come into my presence. Come into my home. Come into all my resources for you. Come celebrate with me. 
A time will come when to this same group, Jesus will say, woe to you. More than once, a tirade. Woe to you, 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 woe to you. You lay burdens on people's shoulders and you don't lift a finger to help and you do it in the name of God. You look like a whitewashed tomb, but inside you are dead men's bones. That will come. But it takes about three years before Jesus will talk like that. Right? And by then he knows they are scheming to murder him. But here, here, there is no woe to you. There is even for the hard-hearted, inappropriately conservative, an invitation to the joyless, joyful grace of God in celebration and recovery. Sometimes in the circles that I minister in, the hardest people that people have trouble loving are people like me. Conservative, Bible-believing people have a hard time loving people like me because what they've experienced in churches is something far different from how Jesus pictures God and how Jesus' disposition before people. So they have a hard time loving me and they'll, they'll want to cancel people like me out. They end up having a same kind of picture as the Pharisees here do, only not as conservatives, as progressives. And they too want to shun and separate and say, no, you are no longer allowed. How different the conservative and the progressives are from Jesus, who does not cancel out even the inappropriate conservative Bible talker, who also can find the mercy and grace of God. Isn't that Good news. This is why uh, throughout the centuries we have been hesitant to say where the rich young ruler will be because we don't know. He walked away. Yes, Jesus led him. Yes, and Jesus loved him. Yes. And when one walks away. The invitation remains. A, a young girl who read through the Chronicles of Narnia series picked up on this situation with Susan and she wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis asking, troubled, what happened to Susan? Where is Susan? And in his letter, C.S. Lewis wrote back, he said this, the books don't tell us what happened to Susan she is left alive in this world at the end, having by then turned into a rather silly, conceited young woman. But there's plenty of time for her to mend. And perhaps she will get to Aslan's country in the end. And that's how this story Jesus tells ends. We don't know. Does the stay-at-home rebel enter the party 
or not. That's where the master storyteller leaves us. And now those listening to his story have decision to make. Will they enter the party or not? It will cost them. Each word along the way with each story is what? Repentance. When I picture repentance, I picture a, a frowning preacher calling me a prostitute all dressed in black on my university campus. But repentance on the, word, on the lips of the Savior. What love. For he loves even his enemies. How would a word sound on the lips of one who loves you? How does it sound? It simply means turn. Turn. Come home. And if that one would come to the party, what is the other word repeated all the way through? Rejoicing. From repentance to rejoicing. Celebration. Laughter. Recovery. Stories of grace washing over the community. And isn't this what you long for? When we are compelled by Jesus, we will move toward people. But not everyone is the same. Some have wandered. Some seem to be misplaced by God. Others are willful rebels. Others are hardened stay-at-home rebels. And in each case, Jesus pictures who God is for them and shows them the disposition of God toward them. And in each case, we learn how to go to another person. We're first discerning. Are they a wanderer? Or have they been misplaced by providence, it seems? Uh, are they willful? And we respond accordingly. And it's not just those we go to reach, is it? What's your story? I am the stay-at-home rebel. My way of rebelling was to get ever more religious, joyless, superior. That was my way, and Christ found me and saved me. But what about you? Are you a wanderer? Did you feel forgotten and misplaced? Did you willfully stand up and say, no? Or like me, did you say, no, by covering it up with a yes? Then whoever you might be, take heart. Jesus is a good shepherd. Jesus is like a financially savvy woman coming to find what she knows is valuable. Jesus is like a father who waits eagerly for you. Jesus is like a father who moves toward you and says, come. Come find joy. Come celebrate with me. Let's pray together. Lord, here we are thanking you for your words and we ask that you would open
our heart and mind to you. We thank you for the cross by which you secured mercy and grace for every wanderer, every misplaced person, every runaway and stay-at-home rebel. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to make a donation to support the work of Bangor Worldwide, please visit www.worldwidemission.org slash donate.